Welcome to the Pivotcast. This episode was recorded on October 19th, 2017 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Amanda Leduc, Dorothy Ellen Palmer, and Kenneth Smuckler. Just so you know, this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. Dorothy Ellen Palmer is a disabled senior writer, mom, binge knitter, yay, retired teacher, and improv coach. Her first semi-autobiographical novel, When Fenelon, did I say that right? Falls, was published by Coach House in 2010, is about a disabled teen freeing a bear from a cage in the summer of 1969. It was longlisted for the Relit Award. Her work has appeared in Nee West Review, Little Fiction, Big Truth, and Don't Talk to Me About Love. Her memoir, This Redhead and Her Walker Walk Into a Bar, will be published by Woolsack and Wynn in 2019. Please give a warm welcome to Dorothy Palmer. Thank you, everybody. I'm thrilled that I'm able to be here. And I do mean that quite literally. I'm thrilled that I'm able to be here. Um, Kinesia and Michelle are to be commended for changing venue for the pivot and going out of their way to hunt down an accessible venue. And the 20% of us with with disabilities on the planet truly thank them for doing that. Can we give them a hand, please? I'm also delighted to be here with my very good friend, Amanda LaDuc, and my new friend, Ken. And we are together very grateful for you coming to listen to all of us. Readings take place in a context, and I very briefly want to mention three contexts. First of all, I was a high school teacher for 23 years, a union branch president, district vice president, picket captain, more times than I can count. Are there any strikers from the colleges with us tonight? Well, wave at me if you are. Because I just, yes, I just want to say thank you to all of you. I know what it means to go on strike for education and other people's children. And if you know any of those people, buy them a beer or several. Um, Second context, obviously, really briefly, uh, this reading is about words and follows on the death of Gord Downey. And I just, we all have our personal reactions to that, but I just want to give you a very small one. My first book, as Michelle said, was When Fenland Falls. Fenland Falls is a small town, a stone's throw from Bob Cajun, where it really is true for me. Um, The constellations revealed themselves one star at a time. So I I just want to say thanks, Gord. Um, And last but never least, the third context of this reading is in the uh, wave of the Me Too campaign. And that has offered women an opportunity to show solidarity with each other and has offered men a chance to listen and to learn and to do better. I'd like to think that my memoir in terms of disability does all of those things. So without further ado, my memoir will be published by Wolsack and Wynn in 1919. And thank you for being here. I'd like to begin. This redhead and her walker walk into a bar. Once a redhead, always a redhead. If you're looking for feisty, you've found me. As for stories about bars, I adore the cast of humanity that walks into them. I've walked into a few myself. Some were even drinking establishments, home of many a tall tale and rib tickler. Others are no joke. They're all the bars that block my way. 
Stop me, stone cold sober. Stairs, curbs, snow, narrow aisles, and dastardly doorways. Indoors and out, they're the table corners, stray shoes, stones, and sidewalk cracks. The endless obstacles that despite my walker, I still so skillfully run into, trip over, and fall for. Like the Pope, I'm forever kissing the ground. <laughs> but bloody knees and bruises heal. It's the yellow tape in all our minds that does lasting damage. The disbarments of ableism, erected by privilege, tempered in fear, and sealed with shame. For the long 60 years they kept me from loving my limping body, I was so lame. Today, I'm a little old lady bar breaker. I'm splendidly lame, exquisitely lame, flaming lame. Today, I can name and claim my life in my body. Today, I'm lame and I'm whole. Thanks to a pair of enemies who became my long-standing friends. Please let me introduce them to you. At size 2.5 down here, my left foot, Herkimer, is the more flexible and finely boned. Frail, fussy, and bossy, he's my personal C-3PO. <laughs> my right foot, Horatio, a full-size stubbier at 1.5, is my workhorse, Eeyore. Plodding, persistent, and as stubborn as a fridge magnet. This is the story of how we learned to identify as a threesome, found the pride to tell the world that we were born this way. Together in triumvirate, we negotiate each step of my life. Since there are two of them and one of me, I'm frequently outvoted, especially lately. My hair is turning gray. My disability is degenerative. With each passing day, I'm less spring and more chicken. Despite surgery and meds, I'm in constant pain. When I fall on my knees, I don't hear angel voices. I do hear cussing, <laughs> usually mine. It took 50 years to learn a more useful language. Why did it take so long? Because for most of my life, I could pass in the walking world. From my shoes up, I looked normal, just another little red-headed girl. Auburn curls, blue-gray eyes behind good girl glasses, Jackson Pollock freckles, and a toothy smile. Pushing past pain, I could impersonate an able body, fake a reasonable facsimile of the gait of my abled peers. And my tongue was always quick on its feet. I blamed limping on a ninja thumbtack. I passed falling off as clumsy, or one teensy drink too many. When asked about childhood operations, I lied. I claimed the knife had cured me. Because I could pass for normal, I couldn't pass up a normal life. I refused to be demoted to the humiliation of being seen as disabled. I told a liar's line, I collaborated. I told myself suffering in silence raised the personal courage bar. In truth, it lowered it. Shame turned silence into a bar. 
This is how you become an imposter in your own life. You fake a role until it is your life. You relegate your authentic self to the role of shameful secret understudy, one who never sees the stage. To perform in this walking world, I hid my true-born self in a disabled closet. My adoption framed it. God and my girlhood insulated it. I made it fashionably cozy in my 20s, barred the door, and spent the next 30 years ensuring no one picked the lock. As desperate as Cinderella's stepsisters, I forced myself into pair after pair of unwearable shoes. Strapless shoes fell off my feet. Straps tore open my scars. As the curtain closed on the 20th century in full costume, I hit every cue. I skipped double dutch, slow danced, paced the stage at graduation, pushed my baby's strollers, and directed three decades of teenage actors. Of course I became a drama teacher. <laughs> of course I specialized in improv. I'm a great pretender, especially on my feet. And I love a running joke, especially one told by someone who can't run. This redhead walking into bars embodies improv's best tools, recursion, mixed metaphor, and the forced fit. I'm a daily practitioner of one of the most important aspects of improv, the very method acting that wins abled actors Academy Awards when they impersonate disabled people like me. Few saw the backstage me, a woman struggling to stand on her own two feet. No one saw the two twisted lumps fused to my ankles which meant, like all closeted pretenders, I lived in omnipresent fear of being outed. I lied and denied to prevent it. I laughed off my bruises. I made love in my socks. But even the best of acts face a closing night. My stand-up got old. After a 50-year run on two feet, I needed three. My first third foot was a chrome crutch a flashy, fickle bad boy named Bo. Like my ex-husband, he delighted in dumping me. <laughs> At 59, exhausted by being a good little tiny Tim on a crutch, I upgraded to a more supportive partner, my walker Wenceslas. Like his kingly Christmas carol namesake, he's a squat, quiet, kindly soul. He patiently dints the snow as I tread safely in his wheel tracks. But the instant I touched Bo, my closet cracked. When I stepped out with Wenceslas, I outed myself completely. A crutch can be temporary. A walker is not. It's hyper-visible. A body prop, not a stage prop. And no king reigns forever. Wenceslas and I know we're both literally on our last legs. His successor, my future power wheelchair, waits in the wings. I've already named her. She's Queen Mehetabel the Inevitable, and I'm learning to welcome her. In short, all four foot ten of me won't be telling you a triumphant knee slapper about overcoming disability. This explicated running joke has no inspiring punchline. 
My disability can't be hidden, halted, or healed. We all need to stop pretending it can be or should be, beginning with me. That's the catch-22 of closets. The longer they're locked, the more they beg to be opened. They're claustrophobic. Inevitably, they start to smell a little funky. Craving human company, the hand reaching for the key is your own. How very fitting. In my ripe old age, I'm coming out of the disabled closet. I'll do my best to air it out, to share the growing pains of redressing my disabled body. I'll try to see it, name it, respect it, and plan for its aging. That's the vision I suggest we all need, a peep show that's not a freak show. I long to show you the extraordinary ordinariness of my life. Why is my lame life exquisite? Because a life in pain is delicate and well-crafted. In all its shriveling, aching loss, it is joyfully, openly mine. And most splendidly, because I'm not flaming alone. In my lifetime, so many of us have kindled our righteous anger. All kinds of closets have been pried open from the inside. I long to be on the right side of that history to add my two cents to that joint wealth. So tonight, I'm offering you my unclad truth, exposing my lifelong ableism, hoping you'll get naked with me. Let's all get dressed down together. <laughs> but as you chuckle, please remember this. Funny women are always angry. <laughs> We're taught to aim the punchline at ourselves and smile. Raging laughter leaves us smoldering. Not this time. After a lifetime of walking into bars, I can finally aim both farce and fury at the bars and bartenders not at myself. Please permit me to introduce you to our real target, the bar of ableism. In our heads and our hearts, ableism wields both a carrot and a stick. It values, favors, normalizes, rewards, privileges, entitles, emboldens, empowers, and enriches abled people. Ableism marginalizes, silences, limits, devalues, impedes, impoverishes, erases, punishes, and kills disabled people. It's systemic, built into every moment, into beliefs, behaviors, buildings, languages, and laws. It's intersectional, one of the many strands knitted into reinforcing oppressions. And its greed is built on my back. Know this. If you are one of the abled 80% in every second of every day, you are stealing from me. Robbing the 20% of us who are disabled. As my oppressors, as my colonizers, you have seized a near 100% of time, space, and resources for yourselves as your right. And in the height of abled privilege, you see no theft. Accordingly, any aim we take at ableism must be double-buried, double-barreled. Double-buried, that's hilarious. <laughs> double-barreled. <laughs> we must deconstruct the discrimination and dethrone the privilege. 
As I come out swimming, I hope you enjoy my diverse cast of characters. You'll meet a vigilante vandal and a unique double casting of shoes and parents. You'll see cameos from my heroes, visionary poet Audre Lorde and disabled activist Stella Young. You can expect Archie Bunker to spank Tiny Tim. And because this is Canlit, expect Jeopardy host Alex Trebek to add some silken-voiced comic relief. <laughs> All in my personally improvised version of, holy sh**, it's Saturday night and I'm still alive. <laughs> it's the uncomfortable humor I trust. It's purposeful. I'm stripping down my life and my body to extend a loving touch to all the somebodies like me. Will you join us? Herkimer, Horatio, and I invite you to come trip with us down memory lane. Welcome to the ableist alphabet we learned to unlearn, fall by fall, step by step. Welcome to the words that barred, then battered down my closet. Thank you. Dorothy. Thank you so much. Um, I must also acknowledge that this is the territory of the Huron, Wendat, and Petim First Nations, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Um, this and all other readings occur on their territory, and thank you. Uh, I am so thrilled to bring up Kenneth Smuckler. Um, I'm going to read your bio. It reads like a story itself, so thank you for writing it. In 1932, according to Smuckler family lore, Ripley's Believe It or Not featured three-year-old Kenneth because he could read a printed page both forward and backward. More than eight decades later, after stretches of time given over to practicing law, teaching, writing columns, stories, and a TV script, along with becoming one of the grand old men in the world science fiction community, Ken is still doing things backwards with his very late in life interest in both fairy tale and other related characters. He became a lawyer because so many people in the world needed help. After a while, he saw that there were already many lawyers helping people in the world. But what about other worlds? Didn't they need legal help too? <laughs> <laughs> Who was rushing to help the three bears deal with a trespasser? Who would help the priests of the temple of Dagon after Samson destroyed their temple? And poor loving Brunhilde, who wants to trade her horns and armor for an apron and just cook for her wife. Who can she turn to for help? Since there was no one, Kenneth decided to start his own law firm. And now that he has retired from full-time practice, that firm is known as Far and Beyond. Kenneth, Kenneth M. Smuckler, QC of Council. When not in the office, Ken lives in Toronto with Fran, his wife of 60 years, enjoys visiting with their four children, and moderating teaching classes to students over the age of 50 at Ryerson University's Life Institute. Please welcome Kenneth. I became concerned after a lifetime of practice about the people who didn't have the proper representation, and you'll shortly hear about who they are. I'm starting with, these are all excerpts, by the way, from the files of Far and Beyond. Um, I couldn't possibly bring the entire file, so just one little bit here and there. And I'm starting with a letter accepting the Gaza Municipal Council as clients. Council members, <clears throat> we understand that you are being sued by the board of directors of the congregation of the temple of the Philistine god Dagon. They are claiming that the temple building itself was destroyed by one Samson ben Manoah, and that one man, and a blind one at that, 
could not have destroyed the building unless the municipal building inspectors who signed off on the construction had been negligent in performing their duties. We have examined the fact situation leading up to the collapse of the temple and there are several areas of defense we would like to pursue. This is, of course, a letter from the solicitors accepting the municipal council as clients. The simplest approach would be to lay the blame for the collapse on Dagon himself. After all, one expects a god to protect his own temple. It is possible to suggest that the man Samson was only carrying out, although inadvertently, the wishes of the god Dagon, who for some reason was displeased with his congregation. Dagon was sending a message to the congregation that they had not been taking him seriously enough. So Samson was really Dagon's agent, and through the principle of vicarious liability, it is really Dagon who's responsible for the collapse. <coughs> this is the way lawyers argue. I want you to understand that. What's more, I think we can add gross negligence to our charges. Samson got his strength from the god of the Hebrews, who is a far more powerful god than Dagon. Dagon underestimated Samson's strength, thinking it was in the range that he could provide for. But in fact, coming from the more powerful god, the power in Samson's arms was much greater than Dagon had considered. It is known that the Philistine gods will take umbrage at any perceived slight. Uh, we have, in fact, dealt with them before. And we believe that we can make this argument with sufficient anecdotal background to raise a serious defense. In addition, we understand that the woman Delilah, who is apparently one of the witnesses on whom the board of directors is planning to rely, may be one of their weakest points. It appears that the man Samson was only in the temple on the assurances of the woman Delilah that he was harmless and could not be a danger in any way. She apparently has made this assertion because she is responsible for Samson's haircut. This presents us with two approaches. First, that the man Samson was only in the temple in the first place because of the actions of the board's own agent, the woman Delilah. And second, her action in cutting his hair was illegal since she did not have a license as either a hairdresser or a barber. We believe that her credibility can be attacked on this basis, especially if we, if we secure the services of the president of the hairdressers guild to advise the court of the consequences of allowing unlicensed persons to cut hair. For example, the spread of disease, the ridicule and loss of social standing resulting from a botched hair dye, etc. Hair dye. But our best bet is probably a simple motion to strike the action on the basis of one of the old maxims of equity. He who comes into equity must come with clean hands. You are being sued by a group of people who had this man, Simpson, Samson, kidnapped, chained, and for all we know, waterboarded. This congregation's hands are stickier than a baby with an ice cream cone. If we don't get this case tossed out in 15 minutes, I'll cut my fee in half for the first day, anyhow. Your initial retainer will be 1,000 pieces of silver with refreshers of 100 pieces of silver for each day of the trial, should it go past two weeks. Expenses for witness travel will be extra. Am I alone? Thank you. It's, it's scary being up here when you're not sure if there's anyone else. Can we make more noise. Got an, another one? We'll make more noise, yeah. Thank you. Please do. 
Noise is deeply appreciated. This is called the Frankenstein file. It's the judge's ruling on a motion to strike. <clears throat> uh, this is a motion which has been brought by the defendant, Dr. Frankenstein, to strike out the negligence action against him, commenced by the plaintiff, currently known as John Doe, or sometimes the monster. <laughs> the defendant submits four arguments that he claims are sufficient to dismiss the action against him. I address each of these below, providing my reasons for disagreeing and denying this motion to strike. One, the defendant argues that the plaintiff has no name and no place of residence and therefore cannot be held responsible for costs should the court order the plaintiff to pay the defendant's costs. I disagree. This is moot. The plaintiff, having been alive only 23 months, is represented by the office of the children's lawyer and therefore is not responsible for costs in any case. Two, the defendant argues that the plaintiff, John Doe, having been created by the defendant, Dr. Frankenstein, is not a natural person and therefore has no standing in this court. I cannot accept this argument. This case cannot be treated only as one individual bringing action against another. To the contrary, there are serious matters of public interest involved. The results of this trial, if it proceeds, will impinge on several areas of the scientific world. Although Mr. Doe has been assembled from various human beings, his creation is not wholly divorced from the possibility of simply being cloned from one person. Before anyone raises the argument that all of Mr. Doe's parts were obtained from deceased persons, I am sure that any one of the experts present in court will point out that material suitable for cloning can be derived from a cadaver. Furthermore, my fellow judges and I have expected any day to be confronted with the development from the field of artificial intelligence. The Turing test, which is sufficiently well known for me to take judicial notice of it, is based on the premise that if I hold a conversation with an individual that I cannot see, let us say by texting or even considering the advances in voice production software and hardware over a telephone line, and I cannot tell whether I'm conversing with a machine or a human being, if it is a machine, it is a true AI. The obvious next step will be for someone to claim the rights of a human being, citizenship, for example, for the artificial intelligence he has developed. I trust the parties are aware that we have had eight so-called expert witnesses from the various fields of medicine, technology, philosophy, and religion, leading to eight different definitions of the words natural person. And remarkably, each one of these experts was able to prove that According to his reasoning, all of the other experts were wrong, including those testifying on the same side. Accordingly, I am forced to rule that there is no satisfactory definition of either a natural person or a human being sufficient to exclude the plaintiff, and I find that this argument also fails. In the plaintiff's claim, he alleges that Dr. Frankenstein was negligent in his actions and used materials that were below any reasonable standard in his creation. In his motion to strike, the defendant claims that he used the best materials available to him and that if any of the materials used were inferior, that was the fault of his assistant Fritz and not the defendant himself. During what is the longest number of days I have ever spent on such a motion, we once again heard experts discussing what would be a reasonable standard under the circumstances. 
The one thing on which they all agreed was that the circumstances were unique, and accordingly I am obliged to rule that it is necessary to hold a trial to determine whether there is, in fact, such a thing as a reasonable standard for the creation of a human being. Once again, assuming, as I must do, the possibility that a trial will indeed credit the plaintiff with the appellation human being. In addition, I am forced to hold that the assistant Fritz was acting as the defendant's agent. And just because the defendant chooses as his assistant an agent clumsy enough to drop a human brain and render it unsuitable for the doctor's purpose, forcing the said Fritz to procure a less satisfactory brain, this reflects only on the defendant's inability to employ proper help. <laughs> Thank you. Finally, the defendant claims since the plaintiff was his, the defendant's creation, he is the property of the defendant and therefore cannot in law be allowed to sue his owner. We return to the question of whether the plaintiff is a human being. And as I have ruled above, this is a question of sufficient public policy that it requires a full-scale trial for determination. Furthermore, I must point out to the defendant that if he persists in his claim that he owns the plaintiff and the plaintiff is ruled at trial to be a human being, the defendant may not only lose this case, he may also find himself subject to the tr criminal penalties involved in cases of slavery. As an aside, I would note that the defendant himself has used the term he rather than it, referring to the plaintiff, indicating an unconscious uncertainty in the defendant's own mind as to the status of the plaintiff. For all of the above reasons, I must find against the defendant and permit the plaintiff to bring his case to trial. There's a little note down here. The judge says, throughout this ruling, I refer to Mr. Doe as he. This is for readability and should not be taken as an implicit acceptance of human status. <laughs> Judges worry about things like this. <laughs> but since there are major questions of public policy, it follows that I will not award any costs of this motion. The decision as to who, if anyone, shall pay costs to be left to the trial judge. Although none of the parties has raised this issue, I will be very surprised if the trial judge or an appellate court fails to question Dr. Frankenstein on his possession of organs suitable for transplant, since they are all obviously now in working order. I doubt that either the United Nations, sorry, the United Network for Organ Sharing or any similar registry in any other country was consulted by him. More? More? Three minutes? Pardon? About two, three minutes, possibly? Um, yeah. Draft of letter from Margaret Beyond QC, managing partner, to Jack. You'll find out who Jack <laughs> is shortly. Dear sir, although your story about climbing a beanstalk and the subsequent occurrences seem somewhat odd, your production of several golden eggs in payment of your retainer has led us to accept your case. Accordingly, it is my duty to advise you of a number of problems, both civil and criminal, which you may be facing. One, the village officials are claiming that, since your erection of the beanstalk enabled you to climb to the giant's level, you required either a building permit or a crane license, depending on how they classify the beanstalk. Because its nature is uncertain, I think a few motions and a small settlement payment to those gentlemen may enable us to deal with this. Unfortunately, when you chopped down the beanstalk, it fell across three properties adjoining your home, killing the giant in the process. 
This has created the following problems. A. The Gottfrieds, as adjoining landowners, are claiming damages for trespass and destruction of property. Their hen house was damaged, and they claim that three valuable hens were destroyed. We can probably buy them a new hen house. I understand your supply of golden eggs increases daily. And our preliminary investigation shows that they never paid more than three copper pennies for any of their hens. B. Widow Munch says that her cow was so frightened it slipped and fell and aborted the calf, which she claims it was carrying. However, I think a few well-chosen words about the remoteness of this negligence claim and the consequences of frivolous actions may deal with this problem as well. Far more serious is the complaint from the village that, regardless of whether the beanstalk was a structure or a crane, you lacked a demolition permit and had no right to chop it down, especially since it landed across the road to the market town and is impeding traffic. In this case, we're exploring a different approach. Rather than defending you against whatever claims they may make, we're going to point out that the trunk of the beanstalk has fallen across the river so that it acts as a bridge. And by using this crossing, it is unnecessary to travel along that part of the road which has been blocked. We have suggested that if they can overlook the problem with the road, you are prepared to donate the fluvial portion of the beanstalk to the village so that it will thereafter be known as Jack's Ford or Jack's Bridge, whichever you prefer. By far the most troubling group of claims will come from the giant's widow. She is demanding the return of the property which you took including the bird that lays the golden eggs and the singing harp, which she says was a priceless antique made by an associate of Stradivarius. <laughs> Fortunately, she has put her claims in writing and included a threat to have you charged with murder if you do not comply with her demands. Since such a threat constitutes extortion under the criminal code, this is true, by the way, we will have one of our, we will have one of our paralegals point out the error of her ways. Since your experience is the most current, I would like your opinion as to whether the giant was in fact simply a large human being or a member of some other species. If the latter, this would neatly dispose of any charges of murder and make it much simpler to ensure that, since you are underage, any other charges would be disposed of in juvenile court. You're welcome. Amanda LaDuke, who came all the way from Hamilton, right? Ugh. You came all the way from Burlington. You guys are seriously the best. <laughs> it's really true. You are truly the best. Thank you. Um, okay, yes. Amanda LaDuke's stories and essays have appeared across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., and has been shortlisted for both the CBC Short Story Prize and the CBC Nonfiction Prize. Her short story, Wildlife, was first runner-up for the 2015 Story Quarterly Fiction Prize and is forthcoming in her collection, The Resurrectionists and Other Stories. She's the author of the novels The Miracles of Ordinary Men, ECW Press, 2013, and The Centaur's Wife, forthcoming from Random House Canada. She lives in Hamilton, where she serves as the Communications and Development Coordinator for the Festival of Literary Diversity, Canada's first festival for diverse authors and stories. So pleased to welcome Amanda LaDuke. Um, I just would like to echo Dorothy. Uh, it's lovely to be here and lovely to read with Dorothy and Kenneth. It's a real honor. And also thank you to Michelle and Kinesia and everybody at Pivot for moving to an accessible venue. It means a lot. And so without further ado, um, 
So I'm going to read uh, from my short story, Wildlife, and just as a, a sort of way to introduce it, um, most of the stuff that I've written over the last sort of 10 years has been kind of strange, but when at the beginning, um, I, I always sort of felt like the strangeness had to have some sort of thing that made it make sense. So a lot of my um, earlier work was religious because I felt like it was the easiest way to make something supernatural. Now, with this story, I started writing it and I wanted this woman to be interacting with hyenas that could walk and talk. And I was trying to figure out how I would make that believable and what sort of reasoning I would have for that. And um, this little voice in my head all of a sudden just said, you know what, she just lives beneath a pair of married hyenas, and that's how it goes. And if people don't like this, if people don't like it, there are plenty of other books that they can buy at the bookstore, and it's fine. So true. So um, thank you very much for coming to listen from a little bit of my strange, weird story. At night, oh, sorry, and just before um, I continue, uh, just so that everybody knows, there is um, a little bit of domestic violence in this story, so if anybody needs to, to leave or take time out, by all means. At night, the hyenas in the apartment above her have sex so loudly that Lizzie has trouble falling asleep. They have the top two apartments, the landlord had said. Nice people. The hyenas, Lizzie repeated, like Mr. and Mrs. Hyena? The landlord frowned. I suppose that's what they call themselves, yes. Are they a problem, she said. Should I be worried? Oh, no. The landlord, Bob, had been careful with her. So polite as to be almost unreal. They're exemplary. Pay the rent on time. Terribly polite. I'm just telling you, so you're aware. But when she comes home from a night shift one week later and sees an actual hyena descending the front steps, walking upright, a black briefcase in its sleek, four-fingered paw, she screams anyway. The hyena pauses, flicks its yellow eyes over to her, and keeps going down the stairs. It walks straight past her. She stands solid on the sidewalk for a moment and then goes inside for a nap. She's been working too hard, and this apartment is so new, and even when she's asleep, she dreams of Jackson, which is exhausting. She wakes up two hours later to someone knocking at the door. When she opens it, there is another hyena, this one in a trench coat. This time, Lizzie doesn't scream. She just blinks and holds the doorknob a little tighter. Hello. It's a woman's voice, deep and rich and musical, with some kind of open, sun-warmed accent that Lizzie can't place. I hope I haven't disturbed you. I was sleeping, Lizzie says. She palms the back of her door with one hand and presses into the wood, catches the grain under her fingernails. I just woke up. I heard you scream, the hyena says, earlier this morning. I wanted to apologize. That was my husband you saw. Your husband. The hyena nods. Her eyes are deep amber, the pupils ringed in red. He didn't mean to cause alarm. He was just on his way to work. Lizzie remembers the briefcase. Where does he work, she says. The zoo, the hyena says. He's in PR. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> the hyena nods. It's a good job, she says. Good jobs are hard to find now. Yes, Lizzie says. That's true. <laughs> we would have come to see you sooner, the hyena says, but you were hard to catch. Lizzie's not sure if this is a joke. It's been a long move, she says. I'm still not settled. The hyena nods again. I understand. 
I just wanted to say hello, and perhaps, if you are interested, to invite you for dinner. My name is Barbara. Her face <laughs> is narrow and blunt, part dog, part cat, part neither. But you can call me Bar. Please let us know if we disturb you. Of course, Lizzie extends her hand without realizing it. The hyena's paw is leathery and soft, charged. Dinner, she thinks. Dinner. <laughs> Lizzie has a new job now, in addition to a new apartment, new neighbors, new life. She works at the hospital instead of at the charity and makes a lot more money. Jackson would be angry about this if he knew, but he doesn't. She's hoping to keep it that way at least for a little while longer. She got the new job just before she got the new apartment. She didn't tell Jackson about either of these things, just left one afternoon while he was at work, took five pairs of underwear with her, and left everything else. It was easier than she thought it would be, or, rather, it was the hardest thing she'd ever done until it wasn't anymore. The job is not difficult, faxing and filing and photocopying charts. The unit is locked to the outside public. You need a pass card to get in. When Lizzie gets her hospital badge and swipes in for the first time, she almost cries. She's never felt so safe. Over the next few weeks, she adds little things to her office space, a combination lock for her locker, a box of Kleenex, a stupid ladybug-shaped pencil case that makes her smile. People are nice to her here, but they don't go out of their way to ask how she is, where she's from, what she's doing with her life. It is wonderful. She adds other things at home, too. A mattress, a cheap Ikea bed frame, utensils, one cooking pot. She tears pictures out of the magazines that they keep in the waiting room at work and tacks them to her wall with pushpins that she steals from the pencil case. The sound of the toilet flushing reminds her of Jackson. The sound of silence around her, heavy, waiting for something else, reminds her of Jackson. Sometimes she looks in the discolored bathroom mirror and catches long tracks of cheers on her cheeks. To distract herself, she buys a cheap laptop computer and pays Bob $50 a month to use his Wi-Fi. She recognizes the sounds now, late at night. Wikipedia has a lot to say about hyenas, including how difficult it is for them to have sex. Practice, it says, is essential. And so she doesn't tell the hyenas how much noise they make, even though the sex gets so loud it shakes the floor. Instead, Lizzie takes to napping in the afternoon. She gets home from her day shifts, eats an early dinner, and sleeps until 10. Then she wakes up, sits, and listens. She leaves the messages from Jackson silent on her phone, a small green notification that won't go away. It happens the same way every time. A growl, a snappish roar, the sound of someone cuffing another, maybe a yip. Sooner or later, the banging, the scratches, the angry yowls that stretch into the night. Then pockets of calm when Lizzie falls asleep, waiting, washed in blue light from her computer screen. Hyenas are matriarchal. There are only four species of hyena on the planet. They are for the most part highly social and move in female-dominated clans over large territories. Archaeologists have found human hair in pieces of fossilized hyena in certain parts of Africa, people believe they can turn into humans. Bar does not seem surprised when Lizzie knocks on her door a few days after that first invitation to dinner, even though Lizzie did not tell her she was coming. Lizzie, the hyena says, and dips her head. She smells of earth and clean shampoo. She is wearing an apron, nothing else. It's long and tan and accentuates her spots. <laughs> Please come in. The hyenas don't have that much furniture either. A long flat sofa, one lamp on either side of the fireplace, 
frilled gray curtains at the windows. Bar nods to the sofa. Would you like to sit down? I am making dinner now. I'll watch, Lizzie blurts, if that's okay. It's probably rude, but she's just curious. What's for dinner? Ragu with roasted vegetables. Bar takes her into the kitchen, pours her a glass of water from the kitchen tap. Lizzie sits on a stool and listens. Bar's voice is rich and also soft, dangerous, and kind. Lizzie doesn't realize until later that she doesn't have her phone with her, has no idea where it is. Kendrith, who shares the apartment with Bar, left the savannah because he saw it ending. He believes, Bar says, that we must adapt to other homelands now. During the day, Bar cleans the apartment and makes exotic things for dinner. Vegetable ragu, leek tempura, venison stew. You'd think that a lack of opposable thumbs would handicap her in the kitchen, but you'd be wrong. I was outcast, Bar says, quite calmly, as Lizzie sits on a stool in their kitchen and gobbles her finished ragu. It is dark outside now, and warmer in this apartment than anywhere else she's ever been. The ragu is amazing, not that Lizzie is at all surprised. Everyone in my clan thought him too strong and me not strong enough. Bar pauses for a moment, searching, her long forearms hitched in air. It went against. But they did not see. They do not understand. When Kendrith comes home sometime later, the residents are, or the hyenas are polite to one another and gracious. They move around each other in long, fluid stretches. The dark mane of hair that ripples from Bar's head down to her haunches rises up in greeting. She offers Kendrith a bowl of the ragu and he takes it, uses a spoon, though Lizzie suspects that this is a formality only for her. There are no yips. Kendrith's grasp on language is rougher, despite his briefcase, the slim way that he walks around the house. His shoulders are corded muscle and every footstep throbs with want. He does not look at Lizzie. He watches only Bar. It isn't long before one of the residents at the hospital starts spending more time than he should in Lizzie's office, joking with her, asking her about her job. Don't you get bored, he says, only half teasing. Sometimes. What she doesn't tell him? Bored is wonderful. Bored is a gift. He is gearing up to ask her out. She can recognize the signs. The way he keeps running a hand through his thinning hair, the way he listens so intent to the few words she throws his way. He is nice, the resident, but he is used to doing most of the talking. You can tell. Oh, God, this exam. I'm going to be so glad when residency, fit, when residency is finished. Ha! Huh, me let loose into the world! At home, she brushes her teeth and walks across the empty expanse of her living room, softly, always softly, so as not to bother Bob, and practices what she will say when he asks her. His name is Jason. The last time he sat on her desk, she made a joke about the Argonauts, and he didn't know what she was talking about. You could tell that, too. Sorry, I'm seeing somebody. Sorry, I'm married. Sorry, I'm not interested in men. Why don't you tell him the truth, Barr asks, when Lizzie relays the story. Today, for lunch, Barr seared salmon in a pan of spiced oil and sesame seeds. When the fish cooled, they sat on the floor and ate it with their hands. Now they are sprawled on the couch, or, rather, Lizzie is sprawled on the couch while Barr sits primly at the edge of the cushion, her apron perfectly in place. You are not interested. I feel bad saying that. Why? Lizzie shrugs. He's very nice. Bar blinks, one long, slow flash of golden eye. I do not understand that. I don't want to disappoint him. Bar sits with this for a moment and then shakes her head. But if you do not know him that well, there is nothing to disappoint. I guess, Lizzie says. How to explain this now? I disappoint everybody eventually, especially Jackson. It's just what I do. Her phone rings. 
Lizzie pulls it out of her pocket and lets it vibrate on the couch. Jackson, of course. He is the only one who calls her now. She told her parents about the new job a few days after the move. She still hasn't told them her address. They are worried. They are confused. They liked Jackson. They thought of him as a son. Hadn't he helped to build the deck out back last summer without a single complaint? But she is okay, honestly, absolutely, yes. Yes, this is definitely what she wants, for sure. She almost believes it when she tells them. The phone rings and rings, and then Barr suddenly reaches over and taps the answer button. Lizzie? Lizzie? Jackson sounds so worried. Lizzie, is that you? For f***'s sake, f***ing talk to me! Barr flicks her eyes over to Lizzie again and says nothing. Lizzie, you f***ing c***! I can hear you breathing. I know you're there. You think you can just walk out of our life? Who the f*** do you think you are? Nothing. They are silent, the both of them, quiet as mice. Mice! Lizzie covers her mouth and stifles a giggle. You f***ing You goddamn ugly whore. I'll find you. I'll find you and bring you back where... What is that? Barr says. A c***. What is that? Her voice so rich and warm. Who the f*** is this? My name is Barr, the hyena says. She could be a public speaker. The words so calm and measured. I am Lizzie's friend. You did not answer me. What is that? A c***. Friend? Jackson sneers. That's rich. What about all the other friends you've abandoned, Lizzie? You ever think about them? You are very rude, Barr says. I do not think Lizzie should talk to you. I don't give a f*** we And nothing. Barr has ended the call. When the phone starts ringing again almost instantly, Barr presses the power button, turns it off. You should have a new phone, she says, a new number. He cannot hunt you that way. You should not listen to him anymore. Lizzie nods, transfixed by the sight of her phone lying dead in Barr's slender paw. she says. It's a bad word, an insult, the worst thing you can call somebody. I know, Barr says. I could hear that in his voice. Her own voice deepens into something that's close to a snarl. He's not a good man, your mate. He's not my mate. Barr hands the phone back. I will rip him, she says, if he comes here. Do not let him come here. I won't, Lizzie says. I will rip him and tear out his stomach in pieces until he bleeds to death. When she leaves the apartment a few hours later, the phone is still warm inside the pocket of her jeans, almost buzzing, even though it isn't on. A reminder, hot and alive. Sometimes the sex sounds like it hurts. The deeper voices bar. The high yips belong to Kendrith, as do the snarls. Lizzie lies awake and looks at her laptop, scrolls through pictures of hyenas having sex. It feels vaguely inappropriate, <laughs> as though she is spying. The internet says that hyenas have sex for reproduction only. Jackson would find that funny. But the hyenas above her have sex a lot for something that's supposed to give Barr no pleasure at all. Lizzie listens, tucked in bed. Parry and thrust, faint and lunge. She falls asleep to the rhythms of their f***ing and in the mornings wakes disoriented, baffled by the cold hardness of her floor, the sense that she has of so recently running beneath an orange and open sky, the space receding from her now, the sun outside her window somehow that much smaller. Two days after this, the resident is sitting by Lizzie's desk again when the entry phone rings and Jackson's voice comes over the speaker. Hi, he says. Is Lizzie there? I'd like to talk to her, please. Lizzie freezes at her desk, unsure of what to do. She is not surprised. Hasn't she known that he would find her eventually? Hasn't she been thinking of it all these nights alone in bed, listening to the hyenas f above her? I'll get the door, the resident says. He hasn't noticed her face. He thinks he's being nice, doing her a favor. Lizzie is still frozen. 
What would Barr do, she thinks. What would Barr do? When Jason comes back into the office, Jackson is right behind him. He seems bigger here, somehow darker, his hair pulled back, his skin flushed as though he's been outside. He's been working out, doing yoga again, probably, getting back in touch with his softer inner self. Your friend, Jason says, he sounds disappointed. You could say that, Lizzie says. Her voice is even and untroubled. Barr would be so proud. I was just in the neighborhood, Jackson says. Thought I'd drop by. Lizzie and I haven't seen each other in a while. Sure, sure, Jason says. I'll let you two get caught up. He even closes the door, lets them have some privacy. He's that nice of a guy. Jackson waits until they hear Jason move away from the door, and then he steps closer to Lizzie. Are you f***ing him, he whispers. Is that it? I am not. Lizzie stands up and braces herself against the desk, balls her hand into a fist. And even if I was, that's none of your business. You stupid c he whispers. He fists a hand into her hair and pulls sharp so that her head jerks down toward his stomach. It's my life and yours, but it's my life until I say that it isn't. You think you can hide from me? I found you. I'll find you anywhere. She cut her hair the day that she moved out. It's a little longer now, not much, but long enough for his grip to get traction. He jerks down as though to smash her forehead against the desk and then stops, just in time. There are no patients out in the reception area, no cameras in the front office. In the hospital suites, yes. None here, though. No need. Lizzie shuts her eyes and thinks of Barr. That growl deep in her throat, the elegant sway of her tail. Let go, she whispers. Or what, Lizzie? Or what? When she opens her eyes again, he is staring into her face, his hands locked in her hair. I'll press the code white button, she whispers. One push and the security will come running. He pulls her head closer. That button? Points. The button over by the door? Do you think I'm stupid, Lizzie? Do you think I'm dumb? Then she bites him, turns her face toward his own as though they're about to kiss, and rips into the soft skin by his lips and feels him squish beneath her incisors instead. Blood squirts into her mouth. He is yelling. He is yelling, screaming almost, his voice high and terrified, his hands in her hair, pushing her away, but she won't let go. She won't let go. She clamps her teeth and twists her head, feels a chunk of flesh come away in her mouth. There are footsteps outside now, the door opening and shouts, hands around her shoulders, pulling her away. Jackson drops, writhing to the floor. The other residents step around him in a pack, their eyes flicking from Lizzie to the sobbing man and back again. There's a hole in the side of his face now. Lizzie opens her mouth and lets a chunk of something fall onto the floor, blood on her chin. She raises a hand and wipes it away. Everyone is watching her, even the people who are checking Jackson over on the floor. Everyone is watching. Lizzie hooks her hands into the bottom of her shirt and pulls it up. Over her shoulders, over her arms, drops it on the floor. Someone behind her sucks in a breath. The bruises on her back are faded now, as are the bruises around her ribs, but the teeth marks are still there. When he stitched her up a year ago, that doctor in the other hospital, he told her they would scar. She looks at Jason, who has stopped ministering to the man on the floor. They've all stopped, now, and unhooks the, black, the back clasp on her bra. She should be embarrassed about this, but isn't. I am an animal, she thinks. I am an animal. When she slips out of the bra, Jason makes a sound in his throat and looks away. The mangled nipple, the cigarette burns that follow the small curves of her breasts. The skin over her sternum is crisscrossed with tiny, mottled scars. Bruises on bruises on bruises until eventually even she couldn't tell what was what anymore. No one will want you now, Jackson had said. Look at you. Everything is wrong. 
No one says anything. Jackson continues to keen and whimper on the floor. Eventually, someone else comes up behind Lizzie and drapes a hospital blanket around her shoulders, turns her away from the crowd. Is there anything I can get you, she says. Is there anything I can do? Lizzie bends down and retrieves her shirt, her bra. She should be something, she thinks, but she feels nothing at all. I'm okay, she says. She spits more blood out onto the floor. I guess he'll need stitches. She steps out of the office and into the main unit hallway, shrugs off the blanket and puts her bra and shirt back on. Her swipe card is sitting back in the office on the desk. She nods to the main door and looks at the nurse. Can you let me out, she says. Lizzie, the nurse says again, I'm serious. Is there anything I can do? I'm serious too, Lizzie says, as though it's all been one long joke. She feels like laughing, kind of. Here, the nurse grabs a blanket from the floor and wipes Lizzie's face gently until the blood is almost gone. Wash your face, she says, before you go outside. Lizzie jerks her head, yes, but slips out of the door as soon as Karen wipes her own car the nurse wipes her own card through the reader. As she looks back over her shoulder, she sees the rest of the team advancing, Jackson held between them like a man who can't walk, like a man they can't let go. She turns away and keeps on going. Thank you. For Amanda, for Dorothy, and for Kenneth, one more time. And for you, for showing up. Thank you. Vivicast airs on CJRU 1280 AM on Wednesdays and Thursdays from 2 to 3 PM and streams on CJRU.ca. For more information on the Pivot Readings, check out pivotreadings.ca.